Well, good morning. Um, it's a real privilege to be speaking today on Palm Sunday. Um, I grew up in quite a straight-laced Anglican church, and I always remember Palm Sunday was one of those occasions when the church went a bit giddy, um, and all these suppressed Anglicans uh, showed charismatic tendencies. So it's a real privilege to be speaking today. And when we read the passage, we can feel that sense of joy and celebration that comes through. This is a victory parade. And when I think of victory parades, I think of sporting events. Um, I think most of us would agree that one of the main sporting events um, to happen in our country in recent years was the London 2012 Olympics. Um, Beforehand, there was so much controversy. The media was so negative about it all. There was a real fear that spread that we were going to embarrass ourselves as a country and put on a shambolic games. The newspapers were full of mass overspending. The transport systems wouldn't be able to cope. The environmental impact would be catastrophic. Um, Then there were reports that the buildings wouldn't be finished and the athletes would have nowhere to stay. And then it came to the moment of the opening ceremony and the country fell in love with sport all over again. The weeks that followed were amazing. 65 medals for Great Britain, 29 gold. And I just remember that sense of celebration, of people's joy, and maybe a slight undercurrent of relief that things had worked out, and not just worked out, but had been a success. Well, when it was officially over, there was a sense of the need to celebrate all that happened, and all that it represented. So a victory parade was organised to celebrate what had been achieved and to give us a chance to celebrate the athletes for what they had done. If we go back to our reading, I wonder if that was how it felt to be part of this procession into Jerusalem with Jesus. Despite all the negativity and bad press and rumours and trouble that had followed Jesus, all the hopes that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one who would rescue God's people, the fear that he would prove to be a sham. But he had been the real deal. He had performed miracles, healed the sick and raised the dead. By the time of the account we have just read in Luke, there was a sense of the need to celebrate all that Jesus had done and all that he represented in terms of the long-awaited Messiah. So there was this spontaneous victory parade to celebrate what had been achieved. And so his followers had a chance to celebrate Jesus for all he had done. At the start of our reading today in Luke 19, Jesus' journey starts in Jericho and he is heading to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how many of you know this, but Jericho is the lowest point of the whole earth. And to get to Jerusalem from Jericho, you have to go through the Judean desert. It's miles after miles uphill. The road was notorious. On the one hand, there was the serious geographical challenge. The road rises Um, over 3,000 feet um, in 14 miles. But the road was also dangerous. It was a hotbed for opportunists who took advantage both of the nooks and crannies in which to hide 
and of the pilgrims and traders on their way to the great city for the festivals. Halfway up, you reach sea level. You've already climbed a long way from the Jordan Valley and you still have to ascend a fair-sized mountain. It is almost always hot since it seldom ever rains. It's almost always dusty as well. Apparently, so I've been told, I've not actually been, but when you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, the sense of relief and excitement when you reach the summit is intense. Because at last you exchange the barren, dusty desert for lush, green growth, particularly at the time that our passage is set. At last you stop climbing, you crest the, the summit And there before you, glistening in the sun, is the holy city, Jerusalem itself. On its own slightly smaller hill, across a narrow but deep valley, there is actually a picture. Let's go on to the next one. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Bethany and Bethpaja nestle on the Jericho side of the Mount of Olives. And once you pass them, Jerusalem comes into view almost at once. The end of the journey is near. When you read this journey in the Bible, it seems like a passing comment that Jesus travelled from Jericho to Jerusalem. But to those first century disciples and anyone who knows those lambs, they would know that this was a strenuous and dangerous journey. The journey may seem insignificant to us as the focus of the reading is on the destination But it's on the journey that our relationship with Jesus changes and grows. It's on the journey that we interact with Jesus and he teaches us new things, shows us things we may have missed, communicates with us in different ways. The question I want us to think about today is how are we journeying with Jesus? How are we travelling through life at the moment with Jesus? And what can we learn about him and ourselves as we move forward? I've recently um, started receiving emails from the Glasgow Prophetic Centre. And every morning they send out a prophetic word. And there was one that was sent out recently, which I really think um, is for us today. So I'm going to read it to you, if that's okay. It's entitled, Discern Your Season. Do you know which season you're in, says the Lord? Do you know if you're in planting or in harvest? Do you know if you've come out of mourning and into my joy? I have called you to work within seasons, but many of you have thought you are in one season when you're actually in another. I need you to be able to discern which season you're in, to know what I am doing in your life so that you can react and respond accordingly. Today, would you ask me which season you're in? For I desire you to align with the season I have you in. And that prophetic word, um, the the verse that links with that is Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. I want us to think about what season we are in, which season we are in in relation to Jesus' journey into Jerusalem. Where are we in relation to this journey? Are we in a season of following 
Jesus? Are we in a season of being called by him? Are we in a season of waiting for him? Or are we in a season of worshipping him? It's important we know which season we are in as it alters our stance to Jesus. It helps us to know what the priorities and temptations are of the season so we have no excuse not to move through well. Of course, just because we are in one season doesn't mean we only have that limited experience of Jesus, but we will all be in a season. And my prayer for us today is that we would be aware of how we are journeying with God at the moment. So firstly, are we following him? Are we following Jesus' leading, wherever that may take us? It says in verse 28 in Luke 19, um, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead. He was going up to Jerusalem. Jesus went ahead, which meant that whoever was behind him was following him. I'm sure you've all been on paths where the path gets narrow. I think of the Cornish coastal path, something that um, I love to walk. And there are times when the path is wide and you can walk alongside each other. But here on this difficult walk from Jericho to Jerusalem, Jesus is leading the way. And sometimes on the coastal paths, the paths are narrow and it's safest to drop behind and move forward with someone leading the way. It can make the walk feel lonely when you are following someone or you are being led. It can feel isolating as you walk, focusing only on the person in front of you leading the way. But you know, as long as you keep facing forward, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, he will lead you, as it says in Psalm 23, through the valley of the shadow of death and into good pastures. Some of us are following Jesus because we cannot do much else at the moment. We might be in a place of loneliness, of isolation or grief. And it may feel like Jesus is silent. It feels as if he is not speaking to us into our situation. Back on those cliff paths, sometimes even if the person in front speaks, it is hard for the people behind them to hear, as depending on the direction and ferocity of the wind, the words are carried away. So these moments can often be silent. But those of us who have been on the prayer course recently have learnt God's silence is not his absence. Even if we cannot hear Jesus speaking into our situation, we need only look up and see him and follow his leading. At this time of year, most specially, we lift our eyes to Jesus, the man on the cross, the man who knew pain, loss, abandonment for our sake and we follow him through death to the moment he conquered death and came back to life. If we are in this season of following we know that Jesus is ahead of us. We need only watch him and step where he has stepped. 
We should look for the signs of his leading through encouragements, words, pictures, Bible passages and verses that shimmer to us when we read them. It may be a season where it's really good to journal or record what we see and hold it in our hearts as we move through to wherever God has directed for us next. Secondly, are we being in a season of being called by him, obeying him in the things he has told us to do? If you uh, turn to verse 29, it said, it says, Jesus sent out two of his disciples. He said to them, go to the village ahead of you. As soon as you get there, you'll find a donkey's colt tied up. No one has ever ridden it. Untie it and bring it here. Someone may ask you, why are you untying it? If so, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found the young donkey. It was there just as Jesus had told them. They were untying the colt when its owners came. The owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Then the disciples brought the colt to Jesus. Maybe we are being called by Jesus to go and do something. God calls us all, but what might that look like? For most people, if God is calling us to do something, it's usually something that grows before it becomes a clear calling. Of course, some people are called in a very clear way, seemingly out of the blue. But for most people, God was preparing the way for him to ask us to do something. The disciples were told to do something seemingly quite random, go and fetch a donkey. But this is their Jesus who they had followed. He had asked them to do some strange things. But in their obedience, they had seen many miracles. They had exercised their obedience muscles to the point that where they were able to exercise trust when Jesus asked them to do something. Their obedience had led to them seeing miracles. And their obedience in this, in fetching this donkey, was going to lead to them seeing the fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 that says, See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God may be calling you and you know exactly what to. It might be that you feel a sense of being called, but you have no idea what. For me, it's often a growing sense of unease and restlessness and niggling thoughts that just won't go away or daydreaming and letting my mind wonder. I would advise you not to ignore those things, but to push into them more. Again, it might help to write them down, write down what you are feeling, or you could tell people who can pray with you. Sometimes in just having to verbalise whatever it is you are feeling helps to clarify what God might be doing. If we look at the passage, we can see that God's call may be seemingly to ask us to do something very strange or seemingly not related. But I would urge you to begin to exercise your obedient muscles and, and build them up then we may just be ready when God calls us to do something big to build his kingdom here. Thirdly, are we in a season of waiting for him? 
trusting Jesus that he will do all that he said he would. If you look at verse 33, it says, They were untying the colt when its owners came. The owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. Then the disciples brought the colt to Jesus. We don't know when Jesus spoke to the owners of the donkey. It is not recorded. But it is clear from what Jesus says and the way the owners respond to the disciples that this is a pre-arrangement. I cannot imagine um, how the owners of the donkey would have felt the fact that they say that they were joint owners um, point to the fact that they were very, very poor to be joint owners of a relatively cheap animal at the time like a donkey. Jesus would have come to them and asked them and made the arrangements and then gone. And the owners of the donkey could do nothing but wait. I'm sure many of us can relate to these people in some way. We have had an encounter with Jesus. We may have been given a promise and now we are in the place of waiting Think of Abraham, who was given the promise that he would have children and they would become a great nation. When he was given that promise, there was then a long wait before the promise was fulfilled. Sometimes I think that's why God gives promises, because there is always a long wait before they are fulfilled. And not just that, circumstances often seem to point to the promise not being fulfilled, And it's in that waiting that we have to trust. It is the time of holding on. Think again of Abraham as Sarah got older and past childbearing age. He must have thought that promise was ridiculous. He must have been tempted to lose heart rather than remain in the costly place of waiting But God always delivers on his promises. I think of those donkey owners. As I've said, it's likely they were incredibly poor. In the time from making the arrangements with Jesus and the disciples arriving, were they ever tempted to sell the donkey? To use the donkey for what they'd bought it for? Were they ever questioning whether they were holding out for something so ridiculous that they should just forget about it and move on? They knew that surrendering that donkey meant they were giving away some of their incomes, income and belongings when they had so little. We don't know. We can only wonder. But the fact that, the, that they did as they were asked by Jesus meant that they became part of this salvation story, enabling that prophecy to be fulfilled. If we are waiting, then take heart and wait. God is calling us to be part of the salvation story. Maybe today we can ask God, how do you want me to wait? How shall I wait for your promise to be fulfilled? What do I need to learn in the waiting? What do you want to teach me, Lord? How can I prepare myself in this time of waiting? Record what God is saying, as there will be beautiful testimony in it. 
God is completely faithful. It is not a question of if God will keep his promise, but when. And finally, are we worshipping him? giving Jesus the praise that is due, focusing on our relationship with God and all he, ha- he has done and is doing in our lives. Um, look with me, please, at verse 35. Then the disciples brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their coats on the young donkey and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their coats on the road. Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. There, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God with joy. In loud voices, they praised him for all the miracles they had seen. They shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. May there be peace and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd spoke to Jesus. Teacher, they said, tell your disciples to stop. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Like the victory parade after 2012, the worship that pours out for Jesus on this journey is an outpouring, an overflow. People just can't hold it in anymore. This was to be the climax of his story, of his public career, of his vocation. He knew well enough what lay ahead and had set his face to go and meet it head on. He couldn't stop announcing the kingdom, but that announcement could only come true if he now embodied in himself the things he'd been talking about. The living God was at work to heal and save, and the forces of evil and death were massed to oppose him. Like Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt trying to prevent the Israelites from leaving, But this was to be the moment of God's new exodus, God's great Passover, and nothing could stop Jesus going ahead to celebrate it. Maybe some of us are in this place today. We're on a place in our journey where we cannot stop praising God. It could be that we've previously been in one of those other seasons of following or being called or waiting, and we've broken out of that season, and we are now so full of thanks and praise. It might be that in those other places, we want to praise God for his faithfulness and presence with us. As I said, it's not because we are in one season with God, we cannot only experience the joys of that season. Our relationships with God are much more colourful than that, as I'm sure you're all aware. Jesus deserves our praise. And if that is how we are feeling, we should worship him with everything and hold nothing back. Like Mary, who anointed Jesus with pure nard, our worship should be costly and extravagant. We should hold nothing back from him. Like Mary snapped the the neck of the jar of nard so she couldn't keep any back. We can offer Jesus our whole lives when we worship him. Our joys and our frustrations, our hopes and our disappointments. For all that he has done and for all that he has promised to do. 
It says in the passage, the disciples threw their coats down for Jesus. They owned nothing apart from the clothes on their back. They'd given up everything to follow Jesus, but they wanted to give him more. For some of us, that well of praise is bubbling up. It's rising up when we worship. It's growing and it's been growing for some time and we don't know what to do with it. We may even be slightly scared of letting ourselves go. The passage tells us that for those followers of Jesus, even if they didn't praise God, the stones would have done it for them. As creation sees that Jesus is worthy of all our praise. As we head into Holy Week, how much deeper we should allow our worship life to go. As we come again to the man who stood trial and was murdered for us, but was raised to life again, triumphing over death. How much more should we allow those wells of worship to bubble up inside us as we come next Sunday and celebrate God's victory on the cross and triumph over death in the resurrection? Our passage warns us that true worship can offend those who do not recognise the things of God. And we can fear those reactions. It's one of the problems of having possibly been in a church for a long time. If we want to worship God in a new way, then we may fear others' judgments, real or imaginary. But when we worship, we worship for an audience of one. Our worship is for God alone. And we should be free to worship extravagantly. For some of us, that shows itself physically and for others emotionally. No human eye can judge true worship. God knows you and the way he has made you to worship him. So I pray that we are free to worship him as he deserves to be worshipped. Not just when we sing or are in church, what we do with all our lives. It should all be to honour the one who became sin for us on the cross. We worship him not just on Palm Sunday and on Easter Day, but we worship him in the trouble, controversy, trial and death. So as we head into Easter week, I wonder where we see ourselves on this journey into Jerusalem with Jesus. Which best describes where we are now? Which season are we in? Are we following Jesus? Is he leading the way? Are we being called by Jesus? Listening closely, hearing God and obeying him. Are we waiting for Jesus? How does God want us to wait for him? Are we worshipping Jesus, letting our worship bubble up inside us?